Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. This is Nashville is our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We're journeying into the identity of our city and region, and we're bringing you along with us. Today, we're getting curious. Over the years, we've been collecting your questions here at WPLN and answering them. Over time, we've been stitching together bits of local history through our special project, Curious Nashville. And today... We're bringing it back. Stay tuned for more on that later on in the hour. But first, over the past two years, drug-related deaths in Tennessee prisons have jumped by more than 700%. Nearly all of those deaths were caused by fentanyl, a highly potent and dangerous opioid. This has left many loved ones and advocates scratching their heads. So what exactly is going on in our Tennessee prisons? WPLN's criminal justice reporter, Samantha Max has the story, and she joins me now. Sam, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Khalil. So more than 700%. That is a big jump in drug-related deaths, and yet that's only based on those confirmed by autopsies. What's going on? So it's really a compounding factor situation. You've got overdoses that are spiking nationwide in the past couple years during the pandemic, Uh, for all kinds of reasons. A big part of it is the presence of fentanyl, which is just, it's up to 50 times stronger than even heroin. Um, But the other thing is that you're dealing with a group of people who are, A, more likely to suffer from drug addiction than the general population, about two-thirds of them do. Um, You've also got people who have been stuck in prisons where the coronavirus has been spreading like wildfire, where there's not the same protections that we have when we can all just kind of stay at home and hunker down. You've got people who were not able to see their families for a lot of the pandemic when visitation was canceled. Volunteer groups were not coming in. They're exposed to trauma and violence on a regular basis. It's just all these things that are happening one on top of the next. And drugs are coming into the facilities even, you know, against a lot of efforts to keep them out. And you see more non-fatal overdoses and fatal overdoses because of all those reasons. One of the last points you made, I'm sure a lot of listeners are probably wondering that, like, how are they getting drugs into prison in the first place? You know, that's the age-old question. I mean, a few months ago, the outgoing corrections commissioner, Tony Parker, he was talking about people throwing drugs over the fences, you know, on Hmm. the perimeter of drugs and that they're having to check for that. Um, You know, there's a lot of security checks when visitors come in, checking to see if they're bringing it in that way. But the thing is, even when visitation was paused for much of the pandemic in Tennessee and throughout the country, you still saw prisons and jails having drugs coming in, which all that leaves really is the people who work there who are bringing it in. And, you know, it's it's a lot harder to crack down when it's one of your own. Um, So the Department of Correction and CoreCivic, which is the private prison operator in Tennessee, they both work with local, state and federal law enforcement to try to, you know, intercept those drugs. But obviously they're still coming in and they're still coming in by a lot. 
One of the many people you talked to was Jason Carnett, a former insider and someone experiencing a substance abuse disorder. He told you a little bit about why he used to be on the inside and how he got started on the first place. It breaks the monotony, I guess. It's a you know a haven of depression and anger and paranoia, and you know it's just it's an escape. My brother smoked pot with me when I was like eleven. My parents were kind of older and uh, they were sick. They get prescribed high-powered opiates, and uh, I would just cry and whine and raise cane until they gave them to me. So. I got hit by a car, too, when I was 15, tore a ligament in my leg, and the doctors prescribed me some, some lower tabs. And it pretty much just started from there. That's pretty intense. How does Jason's story compare to the others you interviewed for this story? Um, so he was one of the only people that I talked to who was actively struggling with uh, drug use while he was in prison. But I also spoke with a lot of people with loved ones on the inside where— um, you know, it's this struggle of you want to help this person, uh, but also when they're in prison, there's only so much you can do. And also like people have to make their own decisions. But the thing is that addiction is addiction. You know, it's not something that you can control. It's an illness. And especially when it comes to opiates, um, we are in a crisis in this country where these drugs that are incredibly addictive are just so widespread and people are starting to use them when they're very young. And, you know, the idea that, you know, you can use abstinence or something like that to just say, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to use it anymore. That often just doesn't work. And the best therapies that are available are not always, you know, readily accessible, especially for people in prison. Have you heard from family members of those who have overdosed? I mean, I imagine they, what, how hard it is to feel that type of loss. Have you talked to anyone? Yeah, so I talked to this woman named Judy Fritz, whose brother-in-law died from what they believe was an overdose just a few weeks ago. Um, and he had been in and out of jails and prisons for much of his adult life. He was not struggling with addiction when he first went to prison, but somewhere along the way, it happened. Um, his dad actually uh, died of an overdose, so it was clearly something that was in the family. Um, and I mean, it's it was just a heartbreaking call for them to get. You know, it's like they have been trying to support him from afar, but it was also the type of situation where for years he had kind of pushed away everyone in the family because he kept calling and asking for money. And that's another thing that I've heard from a lot of people with loved ones in prisons, that their loved ones are using drugs. And then the people who are providing them with the drugs are calling them and telling them they need to give them hundreds, thousands of dollars. These are people mm. who often do not have a lot of money to begin with, and they are worried that their loved one will be killed if they do not pay the bill. Um, I have heard this from so many people. If you look through Facebook groups for people with loved ones in prison, I mean, it's it's just a really wow. scary situation. Yeah. So I understand that 65% of prisoners in the U.S. have drug abuse disorders, substance abuse disorders. But only five people in Tennessee prisons are receiving medication-assisted therapy, or MATs. I mean, that really seems shocking. Is that right? Yeah, so that is the number that I got from the Tennessee Department of Correction. They say that it's a fluid number and then it can change here and there. Uh, but even so, I mean, five people out of almost 20,000 
Uh, My jaw honestly dropped when I saw that number. Medication-assisted treatment, it is when you prescribe someone with a drug that it's a very low dose um, that can kind of curb the craving without giving them a high. And especially for incredibly addictive drugs that people are very dependent on, it's a way for them to be able to live normal life, um, taking something that's safe, that's FDA approved. Um, There is a lot of research on its effectiveness, but right now in Tennessee prisons, it's just very limited access. And the Department of Correction tells me that they are working on increasing access to it. Uh, They want it to be available to more people, but right now uh, the hoops that you have to jump through to get it are pretty steep. So it is, yeah, just a very small number of people. What difficulties in collecting information did you run into as you were reporting this story? You know, I've done a lot of reporting on prisons in the past few years, and it's really, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to cover because you can't just go inside and see what's going on. You're completely reliant on people who are on the inside or their loved ones who are getting information secondhand. So I talked to way more people for stories about prisons than I do for just an average story so that you can see how people's experiences compare. Um, You have to try to get corroborating information, whether that is, you know, if people can send you letters that where they're documenting in real time what's happening inside, if you can corroborate things with the Department of Correction or with CoreCivic, the company that Um, operates the private facilities, if you can get 911 calls, if you can get autopsies, those are all things that help. But a lot of times it's just you kind of taking a leap of faith that if, you know, 5, 10, 20 people tell you the same thing, that it's probably the same thing. And since the start of the pandemic, I've spoken to, I would say, more than 40 people who are either in prison or have a loved one in prison or who are working in prison who have kind of just been shedding light on what's going on inside, because it really is a place that is designed to kind of be out of sight, out of mind. And if you don't have a personal connection to it, it's really easy to not think about it. But for those who have a loved one on the inside or who are there, it is their entire life. It's all they think about. Some of the people that I've talked to will tell me that they have called the prison so many times that their calls are being blocked. They've emailed or sent letters to 40 different you know, local politicians. They've reached out to the governor. They maybe even have reached out to the president. They're trying to get something to happen, and it's it's just almost impossible. Sam, you're a criminal justice reporter. You cover violent crime. You cover, you monitor police activity, and you cover stories about prison, amongst other things. You've been doing it for a while. Not all the time those are happy stories. What were your, What's your experience been like as you report on this? I mean, it's hard, Uh, but also, you know, today when this story ran and I sent it to Jason Carnett and he told me, you know, thank you for sharing my story. That's why I do it. Um, My job is to empower people to share their experiences and to shed light on things that people aren't always thinking about. And I mean, for me, you know, it's part of it is an accountability focus and holding powerful people to account. But it's also, as a criminal justice reporter, I try to humanize a system that is really meant to dehumanize. It's meant to make things very black and white, and these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, but people are just people. 
And the way that we can kind of bring our listeners and readers along is by showing them there's a piece of me that I can see in you. And it, it just makes people think really differently. And it makes me think really differently about these things. Really quick, I know you'll be following this story. What can we expect next? You know, I'll be curious to see how they ramp up medication-assisted treatment, and I'll be curious to see what new steps are taken. We have a new um, corrections commissioner now that uh, Tony Parker has retired after many decades with the department. Um, but the other thing is Core Civic, which is based here in Nashville. Um, it has deep ties to a lot of the political leaders here, even though there have been a lot of questions, even audits from the comptroller's office, questioning their ability to run prisons in the state. So I will be curious to see how all those things continue to play out. That is Samantha Max, criminal justice reporter at WPLN News. Sam, thank you for joining us and thank you for your reporting. Thanks, Khalil. After the break, we're ducking behind the scenes with Curious Nashville, the WPLN special project that takes your wildest questions and sets out to answer them. Don't go away. This is Nashville. Welcome back to This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. Every Thursday, we're taking time to read the comments so you don't have to. It's time for at us. Yes, seriously. I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. I see you every day, but I am super glad to be back in the studio because our listeners had a lot to say this week. They had a lot to say. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, especially about Tuesday's episode. Mm-hmm. Tuesday's episode, we tackled a contentious issue. License plate readers. Nashville is going to start testing out these pretty soon, and the hope is to decrease crime. And we had on a few guests who disagree on whether this is a good move for our communities. Let's say things got a little heated. So what we have to look at what's pouring out in the street from the home, but that doesn't mean that the home is poor. But here it is, though. Here it is. I understand where both of you all are coming from. We're talking about the root causes of violence. We're talking about the root causes of crime. We all want our neighborhoods to be safe. We all want our streets to be safe. Okay. So, Gina Coleman from the Haynes Park neighborhood is in favor of license plate readers. Since her neighborhood rallied to install a few on their own, she feels like she's seen crime decrease. Now, our other guest, Reverend Davey Tucker, questions how cameras providing data to police will protect the community. He wants to see changes in how Nashville polices. And look, I understand why this got heated. It is a tough topic, and an hour is only so long. Yeah, definitely. One thing that I learned about by working on the show is just how fast an hour goes when you're talking about these really heavy topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the challenges that we had on Tuesday's episode is that we were starting with license plate readers and it was getting into really complicated territory. 
um, especially like identifying the social issues that lead to crime in Nashville. Uh, we know that we only scratched the surface with that show, uh, which is why we plan to keep this conversation going. In fact, next week on Tuesday, we've got a show on violence interruption. We'll hear from community members about what they think works and what they'd like to see our officials do. Did listeners have anything else to say about the license plate reader episode? Yeah, one listener tweeted that they wish that we had pushed back more uh, during the interview with council member Jennifer Gamble, who is actually a co-sponsor of the license plate reader bill. And I totally understand what they're what they're saying there. For sure. Also, one of our guests shared some feedback, too, that it kind of felt like we had the wrong people in the room and that as a result, we gave the impression that this is a black issue, which it is not. He said that this was a public policy decision and we should consider bringing those folks to the table. I will say we tried to book Councilwoman Courtney Johnson, who wrote the bill, but she couldn't join us. But we agree with his feedback. Um, I will say that we got some uh, ideas about how we will have the next conversation about license plate readers because there will be a next one because once the um, six-month pilot program goes in, people all over the city are going to have something to say about it. Mm -hmm. Anything else, Anna? Yeah, so, you know, just to lighten up the conversation a little bit, uh, I don't know if you remember, but last week I asked our listeners to send us some advice for Nashville newbies, which I thought would be helpful since our show is technically new. And you are a recent transplant, Khalil, so let's see what they had to say. Our listeners definitely delivered, like Ashley on Instagram, who recommend finding ways to make Nashville your own while uh, Tony Diaz encouraged newbies to really explore the different sides of town, you know, feel it out, get a, get a taste of all the different restaurants. Um, but I really think our best advice came from Bro Gargano, who left us a very nice voicemail. I think this is a great city, and despite what some people might show you, there is a lot of welcoming to be had here for you. I think it's good for everybody to come and to bring their experiences and their cultures and integrate into part of our culture here. We are definitely a melting pot. People come from all over the world to live here, to visit here, to play music here. But make sure when you come in that you're bringing your respect for the people that have been here, the people that have grown up here, maybe have generations living here. You know, there's a lot of change happening in this city. And overall, it's a good thing. We're seeing growth. Bring what you have to bring but show respect for what's been here. Bring what you have to bring, but show respect. That should be rules for people moving anywhere. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week. Yes, and I'll see our listeners online. Awesome. Same time, same place. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey so you can let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. Okay, back to today's show. Does the name Curious Nashville ring a bell? If you're a WPLN News listener, it very well may. It's a WPLN project where we take in your questions and set out to answer them. I went to go vote and I got a generic bland I voted sticker. I was just wondering why 
did I get a generically bland one? I'm the person who will slam on my brakes and turn around if I see a tiny little cemetery. It suddenly occurred to me that the sassafras tree was gone. You know, I wonder if it's just me or if it's part of a larger change that's happening. We were driving out to the Cobol area to buy a sheep from someone. Saw this thing as we went by, and I told my husband, wait a minute, stop. We have to go back and look at that. So he backed up, and we looked, and we couldn't believe it. Imagine that there's nothing more than about 10 stories tall, and then this one tower rises up. And she said to me, uh, do you know about the secret sidewalk? And I said, no, what's that? And she said, well, nobody knows about it except the neighbors. The secrecy. I love it. Well, guess what? It's been a while, but Curious Nashville is back. And my colleague, Tony Gonzalez, joins me now. Tony, welcome to This is Nashville. Hey, Cleo. Yeah, this is one of my uh, my favorite things to talk about in the world, Curious Nashville. We're glad you're here. So tell us, what is Curious Nashville? Yeah, so Curious Nashville is uh, it's an interactive project where our journalists are answering questions from our listeners. So this can be people wondering about like local history, uh, or government stuff like the bus system or you know how to vote. Uh, it can also just be unusual things that you see when you're hmm. out about. So we get a lot of questions about like parks and sculptures, interesting buildings. Uh, and then our goal is not just to answer their question like in the basic way, but to kind of show how we figured it out, including any sort of twists or turns that we kind of encounter while we're doing our research. Okay, so y'all ran this for about six years. And the team answered dozens of questions from community members. I bet you got some really good ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, these are often sort of the most memorable stories, like for our reporters, but they also stick with people. It's the kind of thing where when I'm out in the community, people will will ping back and, and remind me of some curious Nashville story. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I explored whether there are tunnels beneath downtown Nashville. We answered what happens if you put the the wrong thing in the recycling bin, kind of where does it go? We also uh, did an episode about uh, the rotating restaurant that used to be on the top of the Sheraton uh, in downtown Nashville. Uh, so, so at its best, you know, it's it's we're trying to do these stories that have really never been done before or never explained before. Um, I think my my personal favorite, uh, a bunch of people had noticed there's a gigantic peace sign uh, in the forest next to the airport. So, you know, when you're flying into a particular runway, you can see this thing out the window if if you know where to look. Okay. Eventually, I got to meet uh, this guy named Earl Tuggle. He was an airport groundskeeper. He had been mowing and maintaining this peace sign for, for more than a decade. Uh, I, I want you to hear a clip from the story because he put in this effort basically on the sly for many years. I've never told anybody. I mean, a few people have noticed. A few people have questioned it. But <clears throat> it's nothing I've ever consulted with anybody about. Nothing I ever asked permission for, and nothing I ever uh, figured would stir much interest. Shannon, the airport spokeswoman who's tagging along, asks if he ever mentioned it to his wife. She gets a thrill out of seeing it from the air. But did you tell her when you did it? Did you go no, home no, and no, 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 no. It, it was. You got to remember, we're talking about what 14 years of of effort here. So it was a slow, gradual process. I mean, I didn't know from day to day when I started it whether it would be there the next week. Yeah, you know, so you can hear that Earl is kind of a playful character. <laughs> he had, you know, a ton of jokes while we were walking through the peace sign. 
the story also went deeper too. I mean, he has a, a real true passion for peace, and he wanted to create this thing for for as many people that could see it as possible. So, uh, you know, that's that's one of the stories that really sticks with me. That's awesome. So, how does Curious Nashville work exactly? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, questions come into us fairly often. Uh, readers, listeners send us questions. We've had something like more than a thousand questions over the years. Um, we're looking for something genuinely tricky, right? Like, if I can answer the question off the top of my head or if we can kind of Google it, I usually just kind of like send an email back, try to give some information. But when we're kind of more baffled by something, that's when we'll really, we'll, we'll follow up with the question asker, we'll read some old articles, we might call uh, local historians, maybe look at old maps, depending kind of on the question. We'll also just go out there, knocking on doors, talking to people, uh, you know, whatever it takes to try to figure out figure out the answer. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. Are you curious, Nashville? If so, you've come to the right place. WPLN is relaunching Curious Nashville. We're taking your questions and setting out to answer them. Our own Tony Gonzalez is here taking us back through the archives. And, you know, Tony, these are not typical news stories. So tell us, what is so different about them? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we leave a lot more room for for mystery. You know, it's not just a straightforward news story. And we're trying to capture that moment when we discover something or we learn something new. Um, so, so a good example, a few summers ago, we had a reporting intern named Jay Shaw. He got to take a tour of what had been the state of Tennessee's official nuclear fallout shelter. So this is like an old facility from the 1950s. Okay, It's where the governor and other you know leaders would have gone if needed. These days, uh, this this bunker is actually privately owned by a local businessman, uh, and you can hear that both he and Jay were really just fascinated when they walked through together. We'll uh, go into the the bomb shelter the way you would have gone into it if you were using it for a bomb shelter. As I was getting closer and closer to it, I was like, oh, wait, we're going underground. Cool. You're telling me there's 23 inches of concrete all around me. Great. I don't have any cell, cell reception here anymore. Great, I'm here with strangers underground in this cold bunker. <laughs> you go through the doors, rusted to all hell. Creeks open, you go inside, there's a shower contamination area. Theoretically, I think, come in here to uh, shower off. That's what it shows on the drawings. There was occasional lighting in different areas, but most of the building was pretty dark. Then you would come into here and now you're really in the bomb shelter. I don't know how I felt. Uh, I was just cold. I was very cold. I just felt like goosebumps for the most part. Now we're going to come across where vandals, you, you know, while it was in a period of mothballed, where vandals came in and stole the copper out of the plumbing and a lot of the copper out of the wiring. There's a hallway that splits into two directions. On the right, there are a bunch of bathrooms. The toilets are missing. There's 13 commodes in here. And when I bought it, vandals had busted them all up and it was like walking on gravel of ceramic. Thieves had broken in through the, a hole in the rooftop, snuck in from the top floor to the bottom floor into the bunker, and then went into the walls to rip the copper out and then transported that back through the roof hole. I've probably spent $10,000 on just cleaning it up to the state of dirty that it's in now. Wow. 
I mean, if he wants to get in on all this new development, he could probably turn that into like a new exclusive uh, speakeasy or fancy bar. <laughs> you called it. He had that same idea. He wondered if it could be like a brewery or sort of like a, a wine storage sort of thing. That That is exactly what was on his mind. He has a lot of business ideas out there. Okay, great minds think alike. <laughs> okay, so I want to hear a story about where you went to great lengths to find an answer. One where the question really took some effort. Yeah, well, a lot of them have. I mean, going into tunnels or getting access to the fallout shelter, I mean, those are examples. But uh, there is one that, that I, I think about a lot. So I remember I was sitting at an event talking about Curious Nashville uh, with someone who, who liked the idea. And um, she had this question that was really kind of beautifully simple. She just said she wanted to know, during all the building boom going on in Nashville and all the demolitions that we see, where does all of the construction waste go? Like, pretty simple question. Mm-hmm. Um Mariba Knight, our reporter, actually ended up kind of getting this assignment. She handled this one. So on one hand, the answer was simple. There is a specific landfill where this stuff goes, you know, the the, the wood and the, you know, the old building materials. But she also decided that she wanted to follow the fate of one house that was still standing, that was going to be torn down, and, and you know, what's going to happen to it? How does it get hauled away? So she's working on this story. You know, it takes a lot of legwork to find the place and, and to get in contact and there was this really memorable moment, and uh, we have a clip of it, where Mariba shows up, and the demolition has already started on this house. Oh, there's part of the fridge. That's the fridge. Ironically, the doghouse is still standing. It really got crunched. After basically staking the place out for a few hours, Terry finally came back. This time, he brought a dump truck. I looked on as he loaded it up with the wreckage of 1807 Sherwood Lane. It's basically like scooping it all up like an ice cream scoop. The track hoe is balanced on top of all of the debris and then it scoops it up and there's some guy spraying it with water, I think probably to control the dust. I complimented him on his delicate handling of the house. He had real style with that track hoe, scooping up the debris, dumping it in the truck, patting it down. So. He turned to me. You want to run it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I have a license. <laughs> you got to have a license. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't really Release. go in there, can I? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, you can go in there. <laughs> wait, wait. I want to do it. <laughs> I've never shared a track hoe with someone. Oh, my God. I'm driving a track hoe. OK. Ah! So then this goes down? Yeah. That curl, you there you go. Oh. Yeah, so uh, Mariba trying out the track hoe. Yeah. Um, pretty classic moment. Uh, you know, another big part of that story was, was tracking down the family who had lived in that home and telling their story, you know, what it's like to, to lose a place that had memories in it. Um, so when we can, there's usually kind of multiple layers in a curious Nashville story. That is really awesome. Now we've got to go and take a short break. We're talking this hour about Curious Nashville, WPLN's project that takes in your wildest questions about Nashville and sets out to answer them. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
I don't know about y'all, but I'm having a blast this hour. Blast into the past? Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> We've just been diving back in through the audio archives of Curious Nashville, a WPLN news project that we're pleased to announce is coming back. Before the break, we were hearing from WPLN editor Tony Gonzalez about some of the questions the team here have answered over the years. Joining me now, who is someone who helped us answer a question about three years ago, Vicki Todd Stubbs, welcome to This Is Nashville. Um, hello, how are you? I'm doing well, how about yourself? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me back. It is absolutely a pleasure to have you. So. That question that Vicki helped us answer, who exactly was D.B. Todd Jr.? Now, most people know his name from a street in North Nashville that runs right through Fisk and Meharry's campuses. Vicki, this name means something to you because D.B. Todd Jr. was your dad, and he was a pretty remarkable guy, I hear. Uh, he was. He was a very remarkable man. Um, and... What um, a lot of people don't realize is that even though um, in the public's eye, he was a very remarkable man. Um, in my eyes, in the eyes of my siblings and my family, he was just the greatest dad of all. Absolutely the greatest dad. What were some of your favorite memories? Favorite memories, traveling. Um, I actually just took my first real airplane flight going to visit my son uh, in California. Daddy did not believe in traveling by air because um, he felt like we could learn more about history by traveling in the car. Mm -hmm. And for what most people do know, or they don't know, is that we have traveled um, just basically all over the United States. We traveled just um, to the other side of the border in Mexico and just um, to the other side of Canada. And we did all of this by car. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your father's legacy. Oh, my father. Um, to start off, uh, the four of us, my father had four children, um, three girls and one boy. Hey. And the four of us uh, tell his story. Uh, my dad graduated from Meharry in 56. He got married in 56. And unfortunately, in 56, he lost his mom. And um, But in 57, uh, I was born. And um, I was born and uh, I was born in Tuskegee, Alabama. And that's where my daddy did his residency. Uh, my brother was born in... Um, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. That's where my dad uh, was in the army. And uh, that's where um, uh, one of the generals um, that was the surgeon there was watching him do his skills and um, said that he needed to not be where he was, that he needed to come back to Meharry. So he actually came back to Meharry uh, and studied up under uh, Dr. Matthew Walker. Uh, and um, at around about that time is when my sister was born, Cynthia. And then um, after Dr. Walker did all that he could with my dad, 
uh, Dr. Walker made it possible for my dad to go to Minneapolis. And we lived there for four years. And within that four years, my baby sister was born. Um, and that's where my dad, um, he did his um, PhD there. And um, according to the letter that, I, that Dr. Walker wrote, daddy um, did the shortest uh, PhD, uh, what is it, the uh, examination mm. that has ever been done. Okay. They said that he, his answers were coming out of him like a computer. Wow. Wow. I love that. So when Curious Nashville reached out, how did it make you feel? Oh, it made me feel wonderful um, because I, my father did a lot um, for the community and in the community. And, um, you know, he brought a lot of other good physicians along with him. He never forgot uh, the other people that worked with him. Um, so it, it gives me a chance to, to really talk about who Dr. Todd, um, was and, um, you know, people, uh, only know him as a street and they don't know that, um, one of the things that a lot of people do not know is that in 1972, daddy did the first open heart surgery at Meharry hospital. Um, mm -hmm. so, and it was on a five-year-old little boy. His name was Terry Allen and, um, and the surgery was successful. That's wonderful. Talk to me about, well, what did it mean to you that this street was named after your father in 1982? Well, in 1982, um, there was a lot going on with me, um, you know, Losing, uh, well, daddy made his transition. I don't like to say losing because he's not lost. He's, he's in heaven and, um, and we will all see him again. Uh, but it, that was a very hard transition for me. So I had a lot of mixed feelings, but just to see his name go up and the hard work that my mother um, put forth into making um, it possible for the street to be named um, after my father, I think it was uh, very wonderful and gave me very warm feelings that, you know, um, that daddy's hard work would not go in vain. A lot of people don't realize that my father would come home um, sometimes 11 or 12 o'clock at night and he would be up and out the door about uh, seven to eight o'clock in the morning. Mm. His uh, he he would be gone, and he worked. Uh, he taught. He worked, um, and he did a lot of good things um, during this. You know, during the time he was working. So um, to see the street up and, and named after him, I think it's it's just wonderful um, because people need to understand um, who he is and who he was as a black man, um, you know, working and um, doing the things that he was able to do in the time of the civil rights movements and stuff. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We've just been visiting with Vicki Todd Stubbs, 
whose father, D.B. Todd Jr., was one of was the subject of one installment of our project, Curious Nashville. WPLN's Tony Gonzalez is still with us. Tony, you're going to keep answering questions just like this one, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've got big plans. Um, some of the ones, some of the stories coming up, we've got a story about why Bell Road in South Nashville is designed in such a frustrating way. Hmm. Uh, we've got another one. We're going to look into Nashville's power grid and how much clean energy the city is or is not using. So, yeah, we've got uh, a whole bunch of questions that are coming up in the next few months. Vicki, do you have Curious Nashville questions, and what would you want us to explore? Um, yes, I, I do have uh, some questions. Um, I do understand that um, Haynes Manor, a lot of the streets are named after Black um, persons, and I would like to learn more about them. Um, and also um, the area around Haynes, Haynes School has a lot of history there as well. Um, I also would, uh, would love it if uh, we can explore the name of our housing projects, um, such as um, Preston Taylor, John Henry Hale, uh, because um, what I am just now learning, uh, these are actually men who um, provided um, housing for low-income people long time ago. And um, so these were actually prominent men who did this. And I think we need to, we need to explore who these men were. And um, also Z. Alexander Luby. I know I'm saying a lot, I'm yeah. sorry, but mm -hmm. Z. Alexander Luby, they don't know, you know, they just know that it's a library, but they don't know that he is um, one of the, the um, lawyers that was there during the civil rights movement and the things that he did as a part of the movement. I love what Vicki's saying here. We've gotten some questions over the years about some of these folks, uh, and I love everything she's saying here. We should definitely pursue some of these for Curious Nashville, for sure. I think it is totally in. I have a question. I want to learn more about Leander Woods. I heard that he was a man who, over in the Fort Nagley neighborhood, um, of Bass Street neighborhood, when Fort Nagley happened, he held off. He took, basically, he took Fort Nagley back from the Ku Klux Klan way back in the day. I'm like, any man who does this needs a movie, a Netflix special, and I want to hear more about this person. So, Tony, how can people ask their questions to Curious Nashville? Yeah, it's really simple, and I want you to do the same thing, Khalil. You can put it in there. Just go to curious.wpln.org. We've got a little form, just a few blanks. You can fill that in, or you can just post on, like, Twitter or Instagram. Use the hashtag CuriousNashville, and we'll see your questions that way, and we'll consider answering them. Okay. Okay, well, before we go for the day, we wanted to give you a little taste of what's to come from Curious Nashville. We got a question a few years ago about something weird a listener saw on the side of the road. She said it looked like a NASA space capsule. There was no way we weren't going to look into this. So, take a listen. On a dirt road in Hickman County, 50 miles outside of Nashville, there's a giant oddity sitting in a swampy field. It's hard to tell how old it is, because it's clearly been here for a minute. It's kind of dirty. It's bigger than a car, 
oblong, and there's grass and weeds growing tall all around it. Yeah. It's got like this nice, there's, there's some rust, so it's been here for a minute. The only visible clue to where it came from is a NASA logo displayed prominently on its side. That like squiggly on the top. I wonder what that's all about. What it reminds me of visually is like what termites do to wood. I'm looking at what purports to be a space capsule with Paula Ramirez. She's a reporter who has been trying to figure out whether it really is and how it came to be here on the side of this road in Coble, Tennessee. I could see how if you drove past this, you might think that, <laughs> that a capsule had fallen. It's really believable. It's like genuinely in the middle of nowhere. You see what I mean about the kind of like spookiness about it though, with this light and it's in a swampy type thing. Today, reporter Paula Ramirez is going to unpack just how she figured out this mystery of the space capsule. It's an object that really has very little presence on the internet, which is unusual these days, and that really the story has never been told. So, Paula, let's get into this. Um, tell me about this question, who was asking it, and uh, what you started to learn in the beginning. So the question is, on Sulphur Creek Road, Coble, Hickman County, we saw what appeared to be a space capsule with a NASA logo on the end. What is it? We were driving out to the Coble area to buy a sheep from someone, and on the way back, saw this thing as we went by, and I told my husband, wait a minute, stop, we have to go back and look at that. So he backed up and we looked and we couldn't believe it. Her name is Jenny Humans, and she told me that her memory of the event itself was kind of hazy. She, she was driving back and it was dark out, it was late, they were headed home and they saw this structure on the side of the road and they stopped. She sent me some pictures they'd taken. It's like this blurry flash photo cell phone picture. What were some of the first steps that you took or the first clues that you were able to put together? There was one link that I could find, which was to a Reddit thread where someone else had posted a picture, basically what our question asker did. They saw it, they took a picture, they asked, what is this? And some anonymous commenter said, like, I think this is like this other capsule that's in Arizona. Welcome back. If you get off the interstates while traveling the country, you can see some of the best America has to offer. And the same is true near Nowata, and the space capsule you see here that's been lying on the side of the road since the 1950s. So there are other of these capsules that are out there that are actually somewhat more famous, I guess. Yes, there are two other space capsules that are well known in the States that I could find. The other two are much more involved, I will say. They're like fully painted silver. They have color. They have things that look like rocket boosters on the back and stuff like that. And so they're really involved. There's been a lot of news coverage about them locally. One of them went viral. But then it occurred to me, like, okay, I don't know a ton about Hickman County or about Coble, Tennessee, but maybe if she's buying sheep, it's a more agricultural place and, it, and it'd be likely that I could find a farm or a house or something like that. Um, and so then I, I started researching farms on this road specifically, which was Sulphur Creek Road. And there's one, it's called Beaver Dam Creek Farm. So I reached out to them and they got back to me almost immediately. It was within an hour, I think. They said, not only have we seen this, it's five minutes from our farm and we've CC'd the person who we know did it and like they'll be in touch if they want to be. Within like 30 minutes of, of this whole 
of them sending me that, Bruce Howard had reached out to me and he said, hey, I did that, what do you want? I think it was pretty clear that this was something that we had to go and see for ourselves. Okay, I absolutely love that. It's It felt like, like the beginning of an episode of The X-Files or something. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, it just makes me excited. And that is just a teaser of a story to come from Curious Nashville. Head to curious.wpln.org and stay tuned for more updates here on This is Nashville. Yeah, you know, if you're giving it the X-Files status, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's like a badge of honor for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Curious Nashville going for the X-Files vibe every once in a while. Uh, yeah, Paula and I went out there. We did uh, put eyes on the uh, supposed space capsule. Uh, we also met a really uh, wonderful family uh, that's associated with it. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to give away the full story of what this capsule is all about. But I will say we uh, we did find it. We figured out what it really is, uh, and we also, you know, met this family that um, has kind of built a tradition around uh, around this capsule that's there in their community. So all of that will be in sort of this fine, you know, in the final product, the episode coming out about the space capsule out in Kobol. Um, of course, we've got lots of other questions that we're going to look into too, and hopefully, uh, now that we've been here on this is Nashville, people are listening. People are going to send us some new questions, mm -hmm. so then we can uh, look those over. Again, it's uh, curious.wpln.org, so you can send us your questions, big, small, serious, silly, whatever you're noticing out there, uh, and then we'll take a look at it. We'll get some of our reporters uh, sort of on the case, and then uh, a couple times a month, we'll uh, be putting out these Curious Nashville stories. You can find them at wpln.org, uh, just like you used to. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. I'm, I'm really hoping we'll get a whole bunch of new questions so we can learn some more about our community. Man, this is awesome. Absolutely. Thanks to Tony Gonzalez and Vicki Todd Stubbs for joining us. And thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to this episode at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director, and our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. It's really quick. Trust me. It's quick. Please help us out. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.